This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. TL Talk Radio, Season 3, Episode 15. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 15 of TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funy-Hetton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Funy-Hetton. Good afternoon, Randy. Hello, Lynn. So really excited today. We have a great guest with us, uh, Tom Markham, who is the author of Redefining Smart, Awakening Students' Power to Reimagine Their World. And um, he's working as a psychologist, an author, speaker, educator, thought leader, and internationally recognized consultant to schools and districts who are focused on many of the same things that we're focused on project-based inquiry, 21st century skills, innovation, redesigning school, and student empowerment. And I'm uh, really excited to hear what some more of his ideas um, from his book as well. As founder and CEO of PBL Global, he's worked with over 250 schools and districts. He's conducted workshops for thousands of teachers across five continents, providing proven methods and resources for designing high quality, challenging and authentic projects. In addition to the many numerous articles, Tom's publications include Project-Based Learning Design and Coaching Guide, Expert Tools for Innovation and Inquiry for K-12 Educators. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you, Randy. It's uh, great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I've read some of your stuff on Ed Circuit and other various places out there, senior uh, interactions through social media. So we're excited to have this conversation about your work around project-based inquiry and your uh, latest book, Redefining Smart. So let's start with that. And uh, every book has a great question it's trying to answer. So what is the big question behind Redefining Smart? The big question is really one that we don't have a good answer to, which is <laughs> what is the nature of our intelligence? That's something that psychologists, neuroscientists, and neuropsychologists argue over. And if you look at the research and literature, no one has come to any agreed upon definition. So one of my major concerns in writing the book is 
at least moving out of the narrow definition of academic IQ as measured by some sort of test, which is a very narrow slice of someone's ability and finding a more expansive definition of intelligence that would encapsulate what we're trying to teach and help young people achieve in terms of their abilities, which is personal strengths, social emotional learning, a strong foundation of uh, attributes such as resiliency or empathy or curiosity or persistence or however you want to define these soul, this, this range of social emotional strengths and what that means for our definition of intelligence. And along with that, sort of helping teachers move away from that old definition of intelligence, which I think limits what they do in terms of their teaching practices because it tends to narrow their own choices about what they're doing in terms of their curriculum and expanding out what they wanna do in terms of the outcomes. And of course that leads me right back to project-based learning because I'm a advocate for PBL and I feel that PBL is a great way to set up a learning experience and with those kinds of strengths can emerge and be strengthened and taught and assessed. Thinking about that and leading into right into our next question, you know, how can this focus on emotions or relationships and appreciation and caring um, open up a whole new world of possibilities for teaching and learning? You know, what what can look different uh, from what you've just described? Well, this uh, involves a little bit of, I suppose, some philosophical choices about what you believe about the nature of emotion and how things work. In my own experience, I've actually done quite a bit of, uh, of uh, work with the heart-brain connection and the heart-brain partnership, which actually is uh, not part of what I would call the dominant conversation about emotions, because the dominant conversation at the moment is really focused much more on sort of cognitive pathways for emotions. Uh, I don't actually subscribe to that view. I believe that we're much more of a, uh, it's much more of a whole body enterprise. And as part of that, uh, I've done a great deal of investigation and research into the heart and brain and how they manifest in terms of emotions and influence brain activity. I'll just give you a very quick thumbnail. Uh, there is a very strong connection between heart and the hindbrain. Uh, it goes through the vagal nerve, one of the largest cranial nerves. 80% of that nerve traffic goes from heart to brain, not brain to heart. So right there, you look at that and you think, well, there must be something going on. And in fact, if you look at the way the heart functions as an endocrine organ, as a, as a nervous organ, the heart actually has up to for somewhere between 40 and 100,000 neurons of exactly the same kind of neurons you have in your brain, but embedded in the heart. So in some way, the heart is a processor of information. And I believe that it has a great deal to do with processing our emotions and then communicating to the brain. And in terms of positive emotions, having a lot of impact on opening up the frontal parts of our brain to better problem solving, more innovation, more creativity, more openness to experience, the kinds of qualities that we're searching for in education today. And that's really what uh, chapter four of Redefining Smart is about. That is focused on the heart and brain partnership. So one of the connections that I've been making to this idea um, that you're saying about expanding uh, this conversation and not having such this narrow definition of uh, success around cognitive and, and academic uh, to our own making connections to our own work. So we spent 
uh, an entire year having conversations across various groups of stakeholders around, you know, ex how do we expand that, that idea of um, learning and, and going into this social emotional idea. So we created this, I this thing called a profile of a graduate. And it was really fascinating because much of what people talked about wasn't necessarily focused on that only on that cognitive area. So we have this whole section on dispositions around those social emotional uh, ideas that that people are talking about. So we we feel like we're in at a really good context now to uh, begin to intentionally have conversations around um, the whole child and expanding that idea, that notion of what is success and and what kinds of experiences we should be. Uh, offering for our students and really, like you're saying, redefining smart. So mm -hmm. that's a connection uh, that we're making to our own personal work, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily that same context in, you know, many other schools or school districts throughout the country. So what suggestions would you give to leaders who want to, or, or feel that inside their heart that they need to redefine smart or expand uh, that notion of what is success well, Randy, my first suggestion would be to do exactly what you've done, which is to create the vision and the end in mind by creating a profile of a graduate. Uh, I've seen the one that you're referring to. It's great. Uh, I work closely with Fairfax County Public Schools in Virginia. They have a very nice statement of what they expect that profile to be, and it's very whole child oriented. Uh, I worked with a district in Texas for several years, Northwest Independent School District. They've done the same thing. And what I find as a first step, when that vision is defined beyond we're going to do well on state testing and you really start to build that out as a profile that is this broad-based profile, that gives everyone to work for. And actually, when I do a, uh, let's say if I do a workshop with teachers and I know that the district has that profile in place, the first thing I do is flash that profile up on the screen and say, how seriously are we going to take this? Mm -hmm. How are we going to build back? And then, of course... Next steps, well, how do we build this back so that this happens in every classroom interaction and you're now building towards that profile? So for me, of course, uh, and I'm not saying this is the only way, but project-based learning is a wonderful way to encapsulate that profile in the operational Monday morning, here's what we're going to do. And it's a great way to build those in and those skills that emotional, social, emotional learning, the strengths, however the profile is defined it and put those back in the projects as accessible items and intentional teaching, a part of the teaching plan. So it's not a, as I've often said, it's time to take these posters off the walls that we've got in these classrooms that say, we're going to graduate lifelong learners who are this, that, and the other thing and make these operational in our classroom instruction and not divorced from them. So that's me, that's what I try to do. So I try to close that loop by, first of all, what's the big vision? And number two, all right, what are you doing on, as you do this project to further that vision? Now, an interesting piece for that, I think for leadership and for teachers in general, is to realize that no one teacher is responsible for doing that. Mm -hmm. It is the collective system of your district that is responsible for that, which means you have to have vertical integration. It means your fifth grade teachers won't need to know what the sixth grade teachers are gonna do when they, when they go off to middle school, or your ninth grade teachers need to get eighth grade 
eighth graders who have been so have some foundation in this. So it, it argues in favor of a vertical integration of a system and thinking systematically about this. So if you want to teach kids to do this kind of thing, they have to be in an environment in which these conditions are set up repeatedly and the kids then have a chance to practice these skills in various projects or various aspects of the curriculum that are not necessarily project driven. Uh, so that everything they do fits into a coherent pattern. And so as they go through this system and emerge and let's say exit the K-12 system, they have had a really good foundation from many, many different ways and different subjects to achieve this sort of skills and strengths profile. So I think it's, I think it argues very much for leadership in terms of thinking systematically about your school system. And I'm sure you know this, Randy, that isn't always the case. There's first of all this tendency to think that every teacher in their own atomistic environment is going to do this. And uh, oftentimes teachers don't talk. So we're, that's obviously changing and we are trying to get collective coherent experiences. And this term coherence, I think, is critical. We have a fragmented system. Kids go through fragmented classes. They show up one place teach. We don't have enough I hate to use the word stand. I don't use, well, I won't use the word standardization. I will go back to a whole coherent system because that is what to me begins to impact the brain and the heart and the whole body of a child. In other words, you can't just do a, a one-off lecture on how important it is to be resilient. You have to have this surround and this sense of environment where kids know resiliency is important and it's talked about and they have opportunities to grow and show, display those kinds of qualities. Mm -hmm. So argues very much for me in terms of thinking holistically and systematically about our system and less in terms of grade levels, less in terms of, you know, sort of the unitary, I mean, the, the unit steps that we have. So one of the things that we've been thinking about through, we've done some different professional learning cohorts and um, we're looking at the project-based learning as a real entryway to helping our teachers find and design learning experiences for students to meet some of those um, knowledge, skills, and dispositions as articulated in our profile of a graduate. And, um, you know, we know that's not going to be easy and it's going to take us years and it's going to take us professional learning and it's going to take some mindset shift and it's going to take looking at the big system as opposed to our individual classrooms or our individual buildings. And to do all of this, we're going to have to rethink and break away from that, um, you know, the, the dominant thinking of right now of teaching to become designers of learning and learning ecosystems. So how do we, what has to be rethought to get away from that? I remember uh, I used to begin my workshops with a blank student. It's just a drawing of it, just a stick drawing, not, not even a stick drawing, but it's just an outline of a student. And I'd have the teachers talk about what qualities they would like those students to have as they moved through and what, what do they want from students, you know, sort of drawing on this blank figure. And they started throwing out all sorts of uh, ideas and capable, resilient, empathetic, mm -hmm. curious everything went towards the social emotional learning. And at one point I remember looking at this sort of outline that we had developed. And I said, where's the, where's the academics? There was not one single mention of academics and testing on that sheet. So I actually stopped doing that after a while because the answers were all the same. 
what that tells me is what's on the minds of teachers is actually the right thing. They do understand this. And if you're a caring, competent, tuned in teacher, you understand that this social emotional foundation is key. You understand that. So in a way, I would say my first answer is how can we liberate that energy so that we allow teachers to do that? That's just one partial response. The second response is how then do we reintegrate that with academic and cognitive achievement so that we don't lose that? Because we tend to be very binary in our thinking. I don't know whether it's a human characteristic or not, but it's like either or. We're really looking for a both and solution in which we merge the academic learning with social emotional learning. It's actually why I don't even like the term social emotional learning because it is really an industrial term that separates us out from what we used to think as academic learning. And in fact, we have a, we're, we're all, everything's in one big pot these days. It's a sort of learning and we don't even know what's academic versus social learning anymore. So uh, partially, I think it's a mindset for teachers, give them a little room to do this. We've really imposed this, posed the testing system on them. They didn't impose the testing system on us. <laughs> so how do we, bring that to teachers and liberate that and give them room to roam. But also, I think, I guess a third piece to this is how do we do this in a responsible and accountable way that, again, sort of circles us back, circles us back to the idea that we do want students to be deeply knowledgeable. So we don't want to fall into the trap. Of we have terrific social emotional learners who don't know much. That's not good enough. Mm -hmm. We really need to circle back and think about qualities of learning. Now, we all know that this is a difficult topic for educators because I don't believe we're actually very clear on what students need to know or don't need to know these days. Yeah, we got standards, but the standards are being outstripped every day by the amount of information that's coming down the pike from the outside world. And we're just kind of like struggling to keep up. So... I guess the, and, and Randy, you may have, uh, I may have learned this from you, but you, did you use the term learnability? No, I don't think. No. Okay. Think well, I that's have. a really good one. So yeah. I, I'm this in, in the context of empathy, curiosity, flexibility, resiliency, learnability. Mm -hmm. hmm. Learnability is a really interesting one because it implies that you're, open to what you don't know and you're able to recognize what you don't know and you're able to go after it. So I love the term. I'm going to incorporate more of that in my own sort of thinking and writing, but it's not so much. Do you actually know all those facts? It's more, are you able to recognize again, what you don't know and go after it or see that you only kind of half understand something and maybe you need to do some deeper research. Uh, just as an aside, I was reading the other day that uh, Google has been trying to figure out why their teams are successful and why people on their Google teams are successful. And they did a bunch of research and couldn't figure much of anything until they finally concluded that the number one quality of a good team member is humility. Mm. You got a bunch of smart people in the room, and you, but you have to sort of back off and say, well, maybe somebody's smarter than I am at this mm. point. And that's openness to experience. I have a psychological background. Um, openness to experience, one of the big five uh, personality traits. And to me, that's what we're trying to get to is openness 
and learnability and have kids just come out curious and open. If we do that, all this new information will be fine because they will be able to figure it out and handle it. So I think we're still in search of the formula, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it won't do to just to switch everything from academics to social emotional learning or redefining smart either. We're going to have to be smarter than that. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of being vulnerable and knowing that you are constantly and continuously learning and that you never reach a point where you sort of have filled the tank and you know everything. You've, you've conquered that set of knowledge. Even, even people who are experts in some of the most, you know, off-center fields of uh, topics of interest, uh, they're always constantly learning if they've got a passion and an openness, as you said about that. So one thing I'm curious about is your thoughts on, so related to this idea of knowledge sets, how does the proliferation of technology and the fact that we can just access more readily than ever uh, virtually, I mean, I've oftentimes said, and people will argue with it sometimes, but you know, the other side of this computer is the sum of human knowledge, anything, any idea is out there that if you can find it and you can connect to it. So how does that, how does that alter what sets of knowledge people should know? Well, you know, Randy, I think it drives us right back to the centerpiece of this conversation, which Mm -hmm. is how are people going to distinguish what's worth knowing from what is not worth knowing or what is worth valuable to them versus what is not valuable to them. And that's an internal decision that we all actually make on a daily basis, but we don't obviously have a very good way of accessing and teaching that or even in measuring, but that is probably what we're tasked with now for 21st century learning is to help kids understand what is useful or valuable. Now, There's a lot of different opinions on this. Uh, I have my own. I think that where we're trying to make things valuable for kids is in terms of innovation and service. Uh, From my standpoint, we have a world that needs a lot of help, Mm. a lot of solutions, a lot of creative thinking. It needs people who are engaged with the issues of the day because of the issues of the day. uh, we We run the risk of them overwhelming us. And so what we want to do is have those young people come out engaged. So I think there is a character component to what we're trying to talk about. And I know that this, uh, this, this strays us into, it gets us into a lot of territory that's very controversial, but we have to do good things in the world. And that starts with caring for each other and empathy. And I just think we're not going to evade the character question on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's part of the answer. As to the larger question of what we should know or what should know, I think Google has completely confused us and we don't know quite what to do in terms of <laughs> how much do you need to know in order to know something more? That's really the question these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, so fascinating. And I'm enjoying listening to your ideas because I'm connecting to so many of the things which showed up on our profile of a graduate um, when we surveyed our teachers and leaders and worked with parents. and. Um, the big ideas of, of curiosity are certainly coming coming through loud and clear. And and the idea of learn learnability, is that correct? Yes, I think it's a good one. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, how do we provide our students with the skills um, and skill of learnability? And, you know, how do we do that explicitly and how do we do that implicitly? So fa- fascinating ideas. Well, I would say one thing to do is to, from my standpoint, is to shift our thinking a little bit and not call them skills, 
as much as habits and dispositions, because mm -hmm. I don't think we understand what the line is between skills and dispositions. So the common example I'll use is it's fine to talk about collaboration and teamwork as one of the four C's and one of the 21st century skills, but in order to collaborate effectively with someone, well, humility, I mentioned earlier, but empathy, mm -hmm. the ability to sit back and listen to somebody mm -hmm. who, as I say, you may not like particularly. Well, too bad. You still sit back and listen. <laughs> and so, you know, teaching kids these. So it's the, the line between, I think, is, is very blurred between critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, the four C's, and these personal habits. Mm -hmm. We love to put things in silos in education and the real world just doesn't doesn't yeah. work like that. And I guess it's okay to put them in silos, but you have to be prepared once you've got a grip on that to let it get messy. And it's not necessarily yeah, going to be Randy, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, nice you gotta silo clean. things in order to get a hold of them and understand them. I think that's kind of a necessary step. But after that you have to learn to break down those walls and see how they all connect. So speaking of connection, you've, you have some concepts and ideas in your book that most people might think uh, aren't connected. Uh, so this idea of rigor, um, we're subjected to, in, in Pennsylvania, we have PA core standards, but they're essentially common core standards. Uh, mm -hmm. You talk a lot about project-based inquiry. So how, did, how do you see these um, somewhat uh, potentially uh, disconnected topics or ideas, how do you, how do they connect and how can we as educators sort of navigate um, those perceived tensions between those three? Well, first of all, I think that we are on an inevitable path towards a radical redefinition of rigor. So that's the first thing that I would say is rigor has been defined in the industrial world or the industrial system of the classroom as how hard is the material and uh some an example i'll use all right if you got you offer five math problems as homework for the night that's one level of rigor and the next night you double to 10 problems and that's twice the rigor then you offer 20 problems you make the last five problems nearly impossible and you've tripled the amount of rigor so that's the way we sort of define rigor it's almost like a, a hardness quality in a metal i think we're moving towards a standard of personal rigor how do people hold themselves in the world? Uh, and again, it comes back to the social emotional foundation. How skillful are you? How do you present yourself to people? How do you communicate collaboratively? How accepting are you? Uh, how masterful are you with your information? How humble are you in terms of what you don't know? So we're looking for standards of personal rigor. And I think those are the uh, the rubrics that we need to write as to what that looks like. And, and of course, the profile of the graduate that you're talking about takes a huge step in that direction of really defining a new, a new standard for rigor, what it looks like. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not the first to think about this by any means. There's lots of people been at work at this, but I think we are trying as much as we can to universalize this new standard of rigor. And I think it it's helps teachers uh, to understand this and make that transition in their mindset from what they're looking for as outcomes. Once they can make that transition, then that changes their teaching. Yeah, I love I love that idea, um, that sentence that you said. I wrote it down here. How do people hold themselves in the world? That's a really interesting question and very much in line with, you know, this idea of moving the conversation. Right. Like well, that. that's, uh, you know, I, I started the uh, started to, uh, the, uh, the 
podcast was saying that there's no real definition of uh, intelligence, but probably the, the closest agreement is that it's the way you behave in a particular environment. Mm-hmm. And if you behave in a way that is successful in that environment, you're intelligent. Now, that's a lot different from an IQ version, but that's really the way a lot of psychologists these days would define it. It is how you behave in the world. And, of course, that behave, behavior changes in different cultural periods. So one way you might have behaved in 1850 is not the way you would behave in, 19, in 2017. And so intelligence in that way changes over time. And we really are looking for a definition of intelligence that fits our current historical period. So we, you mentioned that the profile of a graduate is a good step forward, and we do have some momentum going. We have teachers talking it. Um, and making some explicit connections. And, you know, we are using the knowledge, skills, and dispositions. And I and I think we need to talk about that some more, too, knowing that many of our dispositions are um, ones that you have mentioned. But how are the skills dependent upon the dispositions, and how does that get reflected in our vision? So um, thinking about that. But in order to bring about that audacious vision for learning, teachers and leaders, we need to shift our mindset. And we need to continue these conversations, and we need – um, for our teachers and for ourselves to define our own own examples of personal rigor and be motivated to learn. Um, you know, what are some actions that you recommend teachers and leaders undertake to keep that momentum for change moving forward? Well, I come at this from the uh, position of teachers themselves need to go through these same kind of changes. It is not possible. Now, it may have been, po- it was possible, obviously, 50 years ago that you could have an algebra teacher who could teach algebra to somebody by just delivering them A over B formulas. They know how to do that. We know how to do that. But you can't do the same thing, point, point at somebody and say, be empathetic. That's not <laughs> So uh, it, a lot of this comes down to the, the uh, something that is really on my mind, and that is truly becoming a mentor and a guide on the side. And one of my quarrels with education at the moment is we're telling all these teachers to be guides on the sides and facilitators, but not actually building out that skill set for them. Now, I have, I'm going to put in a plug for myself because on my, my courses that are online, the second one is called Build Your PBL Skill Set. And I tried to get at this question, what does it mean to be a mentor? Well, it means you have to sit and listen side by side with a student and use listening skills, active listening, empathic listening. That's one little piece of it. Um, even when that 14-year-old is giving you some attitude, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so, Certainly. Yeah, Certainly. so it really depends on, you know, you have to build it. So I, I'm building out the skill set and having teachers do a little bit of self-examination on who they are and what their personality is and how they come across in the classroom, I think is critical. It is no longer adequate, in my estimation, just to say somebody is a teacher because you have done 30 hours beyond the BA and you re, or not, or 30 hours of courses and you recur, re, received your certificate. We need to be thinking of a much deeper definition of a teacher. In other words, I would say redefine the teacher's role. Mm-hmm. I know we're trying to do that facilitators, guide the side, no longer lord of the board, all that. But <laughs> lord I, of the board. Really trying to... Uh, <laughs> to build that vision out so teachers see themselves as capable mentors. I, for example, in industry, there's a lot of coaches in industry who coach employees. They all use professional coaching protocols. 
coaches are taught how to do this. We don't do the same thing for our coaches in education. We just say you're another teacher going, you've done this. You've done, you've done 20 projects that are great. Go in and show somebody else how to do a project, for example. That's coaching other teachers. So anyway, uh, I am. that's one of my things is trying mm -hmm. to build out a skill set that is a little more current mm -hmm. in terms of what a teacher really needs to do if they are going to facilitate inquiry and projects effectively. And we can add that in our show notes. Um, and can you talk to us a little bit about PBL Global and the work that you're doing there? Well, I've been, um, I guess I could describe myself as one of the fathers of PBL. Somebody introduced me the other day as one of the grandfathers. I'm not going there. But, uh, you know, I've been around for a while. I did PBL. I, I, um, I, I worked for the Buck Institute for some time, wrote their handbook on project-based learning. And I, and, oh, wow. And, uh, and uh, have done a lot of work in PBL for many, many years now and been to a lot of schools, as you mentioned. So um, I have taken uh, PBL Global. One of my uh, missions in life is to get this out to more teachers and outside the United States if necessary. So I've gone online. The only way to do this is to do it digitally and put this information online. That's what I've done. So PBL Global is primarily designed to offer uh, online PBL professional learning to teachers at a high quality. And uh, I use a social learning platform that is fantastic. Teachers connect with one another. It's almost, it's gamified. It's Facebook oriented. It's social learning. It's rich. And it has to be rich to be effective for PBL because PBL is a rich teaching form. So that's what I do with PBL Global. And uh, it is possible for anybody in the world to receive high quality PBL training these days. So that's what I, that's what I hope to do. PBL, as you may know, is a worldwide conversation. It's not just the states. And there are a lot of countries, Canada, Singapore, uh, uh, even the UK, they're doing a lot of PBL and doing it very well. I'm working a lot with Australian schools, for example. Uh, and actually, I'm headed to China in late June to talk to leaders in PBL there because the they have a Confucian system, which they would love to transform into more of a social emotional learning system, but they have bigger barriers than we do, but they are talking PBL in China as well. Wow. So it is a global conversation. Amazing. It is a global conversation. I did see something the other day uh, where more and more we're recognizing that the problems of an education are common to all of us, regardless of what country we're in. Mm -hmm. I had a Japanese teacher tell me not long ago that he had a problem. His kids don't read. Now, you don't think about that in the States when you look at Asian education. You'll think everybody does what they're supposed to do, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. so they're facing the same kind of motivation and engagement issues that we are facing. Well, wow, so you've done a lot of work with PBL and you're engaging in a lot of conversations and providing many opportunities um, for leaders and learners around the world. So what's next for you? What are you working on now um, besides going to China in June? Well, uh, I am working on making the online world acceptable to teachers because honestly it is not natural even though we think it's a natural environment it's not always uh, i think i think educators are generally used to receiving their professional development in packets of digestible information sitting in a room and however much there's a lot of complaints around that system there's a whole new world of professional learning that's opening up that is really not so much workshop oriented anymore or one-off oriented, it is continuous learning, social mm -hmm. learning, 
and I saw a terrific term the other day. And Randy, I see so much stuff from you that I always think it's, I attribute this to you. I'm not sure if I can, but I think it was you, the word fidgetal. Yes, that, there was a post yeah, on that. I yes. love this term. I am latching on. So in terms of what I want to do, I want to make fidgetal a household name among educators in which there is a seamless learning opportunity that is continuous, whether you're online, whether you're working with peers, or whether you're in the classroom gaining experience and then taking that experience back to your peers. And so it's just a surround and an environment of continuous learning, including going digital when you want to and when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I love this digital term. Interesting. So lots of opportunities, um, lots that we can look forward to. And we want to thank Tom for joining us. In our show notes, uh, we will link several items, uh, PBL Global, Redefining Smart, uh, the Coaching Guide for Project-Based Learning Design. Uh, and you can also check out Tom on Twitter. So lots of resources there. So check them out. And uh, it's been wonderful having this conversation with you, Tom, finally connecting and uh, making lots of connections to what you're saying and to some of the work that we're doing. So it's been a very affirmative conversation as well. Yes, for me as well. Thank you so much to both of you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great. Thank you. Each episode, we leave you with a couple of questions to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. So this episode's questions, what mental models will you need to let go of to help learners reimagine their world? And how will you become an agent of change? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find more resources that we've discussed during the episode, please check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season three, episode 15. That's all for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.